Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We're in a series called The Intentional Life. And uh, today I want to draw your attention Okay, to, and by the way, this whole series, I'm limiting myself to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We could certainly find some other things in other uh, places of the Bible, for sure. But I want to limit myself to four things that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 that talk directly to God's purpose for making us as human beings. All right? And today I want to draw your attention to the fact that in Genesis chapter 2, there are two stories... All right, if you've ever paid attention when you're reading through Genesis 2, there's two stories there. And they both follow an identical formula that I'm going to show you. They both start with a problem that something is missing. And then by solving the problem, we learn something really deep about why God made us as human beings, what we're here to do, which is part of this whole series, which is how do we live as, as followers of Jesus, how do we live meaningful, fulfilled lives for God? How can we be intentional about living meaningful and fulfilled lives? So let's jump into Genesis 2 in the first of these two stories, all right? And the storyline number one starts like this. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. So storyline one, the problem is, the lack is, There's no vegetation on the earth. Now the writer is going to now tell us two reasons why there's no vegetation on the earth, why there's no plants yet. The first reason is going to make total sense. And the second reason is actually the most important reason for the writer and for us today. But it's actually really a weird reason to our modern minds. Just usually we don't pay attention to it. So let's look. There's no vegetation. That's the problem. Storyline number one. Because for, now he's going to give us the reasons why there's no vegetation. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. All right. That makes sense to us, right? God doesn't want to make veg, vegetation. I keep wanting to say vegetables. That would be included. He doesn't want to make vegetation. He doesn't want to make plants until he's got water. Some, you know, rain. He's got a system for watering those plants. That makes sense. But there's a second reason. So here, notice the four. Because two reasons why there's not plants on the earth. The first one is there's no rain yet. But the second one is, and there was no one to work the ground. Now these, I mean, Genesis 2, these stories are super familiar to us as Christians. Most of us have heard these since Sunday school. We've read over them in our Bible, you know, many, many, many times. And we just kind of read back by and we just sort of, yeah, yeah, there's no one to work the ground. But have you ever stopped to think, why would there need to be human beings in order for there to be vegetation? I mean, we all clearly know you don't need to have human beings around for plants to grow. In fact, when human beings, when we move out of an area, like when people leave a city, you know, you get a ghost town, or you, you, know, you leave a village, whatever it is, what happens is the plants take over. There's more plants when we leave. You know, there, think of how many jungles and forests are around that no human being planted and no human being works with in order to make it go. Now, 
The ancient writer is not stupid. Let's never, they didn't have the technology, they didn't have the understanding of the universe that we have today, but ancient people were not stupid. And this ancient writer knows that you don't have to have humans in order to have plants. I mean, ancient people knew anytime they explored somewhere new, everywhere you explore on this earth, you will always find plants there first. There's always plants there before humans. And yet, he's telling this story in such a way that the point is there's no vegetation because there's no people around. This is not about science. This is about purpose. And he is setting up in the way that ancient people did is they used formulaic ways of telling stories in order to communicate powerful, deep truths. And he wants to make a powerful, deep truth about our purpose as human beings and why we're here. Which we want to use to then look at as to how do we lead a fulfilled, meaningful life. But anyway, now God's going to solve this problem. So this is how both these stories are going to follow this formula in Genesis 2. So now God's going to solve the problem. So solution, streams came up. So now we have the water problem solved from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord, so before you're going to have vegetation, the writer's like, you got to have someone to work with the vegetation. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I want to take a quick little rabbit trail here for just a moment. If you want to be super literal about the order of events in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a bit of a problem here because in Genesis chapter 1, vegetation is created before human beings. It's created on day 3, and human beings are created on day 6. Now that's a problem if you want to be super literal and you want to look for contradictions in Scripture. It's a problem because when you come to Genesis 2, humans have to come first. In fact, the whole storyline depends on you can't have plants until you have humans. Now, some people freak out about that. Hey, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Therefore, I just want to throw the Bible out or whatever. Absolutely not. Because the writer of Genesis 2 is not writing down a bunch of things for us from the past for us to memorize in what order. He's trying to write for us purpose. Why are we here? And, you know, we need to think of Genesis 1 and 2 differently. We need to think of Genesis 1 and 2 kind of like, I was trying, this week I was racking my brains. How do I bring what Genesis 1 and 2 is sort of into modern, our modern culture? Like, what is this sort of like? And so the, the analogy I want to use is Genesis 1 and 2 is kind of. Now notice the words kind of. I'm not saying this is exactly what it is, but this will just help us. Genesis 1 and 2 is kind of like a mission or vision statement for humanity. It's about why we're here. And now in modern times, we all understand vision and mission statements, right? Because every organization nowadays, churches, businesses, everybody has a vision or mission statement. Lots of them, you know, don't live up to their vision or mission statement, but everybody at least has a statement somewhere, right? And the really great places actually try to live up to their vision mission statement. So for example, okay, I want to put up on screen here the vision statement of Apple. And it's not because I'm selling Apple. I am not. I'm, I'm not cool enough to have any Apple products. I'm not an Apple person, okay? But some of you here are part of that religion, all right? And because it is a religion. The Apple thing is a, it's a cult. But anyway, uh, Apple's vision statement is 
to make the best products on earth and to leave the world better than we found it. So, whoa, I mean, wow, talk about get you up in the morning. Now, I want you to notice about this vision statement. First of all, it is short. It is motivational. It's all about who we are. If you're an Apple employee or board member and you're making big decisions, this vision statement is pointing you in the right, right direction. This is who we are. This is what we're all about. I want you to notice that none of us expects for there to be a list of facts that you have to memorize about, you know, what was the date when Apple became a, a company and what were the events in order of how Apple became a company. We don't care about that because that's not what a vision statement is. A vision statement is who are we? What are we here to do? And they also have a mission statement to kind of give us a bit more focus, or to give themselves a bit more focus. They have a mission statement that says this, to bring the best user experience to customers through innovative hardware, software, and services. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Hardware, software, and services. That's helpful. So now we know this is not like a you know, uh, 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 an alligator hunting, you know, outfit. This is not a, a boat-making factory. This is not investment management advice. This is a technology company. But I want you to notice, again, there's not even any specifics in here. There's no mention of iPhones or iPads or any of that i stuff. It's just, we're in the hardware, software, tech business, and we just want to make the best products in the world and give the best experiences. That's what they want to do. There's not all kinds of other facts to memorize. None of that. This is just who we are, purpose statement. That's mission and vision. All right? Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, ancient people wouldn't have had such a similar thing. But Genesis 1 and 2 is sort of an ancient version of that. The writer is clearly setting things up in ways and telling these stories in poetic, theological ways that are far more important than, see, many Christians have mistaken Genesis 1 and 2 as, I just, this is something I have to memorize about what happened in the past. This is actually way more important than just something that happened in the past because it's actually the mission and vision for us today. It's not just facts about the past. This is about who God is, who we are, and why we're here. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. All right? So now if we go back to the plot line of storyline number one. So we get two stories in Genesis 2, both of them centered on lack, both of them telling us this is why we're here. So storyline number one, the problem is, and storyline number two is going to follow this exact same formula. The problem is no vegetation. Then, again, very poetic and creative. This is just beautiful stuff. Partial fulfillment is you get water for the ground. But the resolution has to do with human beings. We are created to take care of these plants and this vegetation, all right? Literally, Genesis 2 is arguing God created an earth and he wanted people to take care of it. He wanted someone to take care of it, so he created human beings. Now, that not, might not make it into many Christians' idea of why we're here, because people say, well, why are we here? But this is literally what the scripture is saying. God made the creation, and he said, I want someone to steward it, to take care of it. And, he's, and the writer literally says this, verse 15, so the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And you're like, well, certainly we human beings must here, be here for something more important than that. And yet that's what God 
made Adam to do. That's what he made human beings to do, to work it and care for it. Number one, work it. We work, the, the, the earth has all of these, this stuff that God's put in there to feed us, to build things with. We work the earth in order to take care of each other, to build farms and cities and towns, but also to take care of it. We build cities and towns and farms and, 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 and national parks and whatever, but we do these things in such a way that we're caring for the earth and we're working it in order to care for each other. That's actually what the Bible says is a key reason of why we're here. That's story number one. Story number two is going to follow the same pattern. And there's going to be another lack, and then that lack has to get answered. Right? So let's find story number two. What's the second thing? The Lord God said. So now we have a person. We have a human being created because God doesn't want to have a creation without someone to take care of the creation. But there's a second problem. The Lord said it is not good for the man to be alone. So we have a second problem. And the second story has to solve the second problem. The second problem is we have no relationships. This man is by himself. I will make a helper. By the way, Hebrew word here for helper, please do not do what so many Christians have done. Does not mean women were created to serve men. This exact Hebrew word is used of God. He is repeatedly in the Old Testament in the Psalms called our helper. Is God our servant? We serve him. In the same way we serve women, men. Okay? Tough crowd. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, at the very least, she is not our servant. Okay, men? It is not good for the man to be alone. All right? So now we're going to have the same formula. We're going to solve this. And in the solving of this lack, this problem, we're going to find the second mission statement purpose for human beings being on the earth. So here we have, it's going to follow the same thing, problem, partial fulfillment, and then resolution. So second part, we're going to get a partial fulfillment. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Now, many of us, the way we read this story, it's like this is like a zoo. It's like the world's first zoo. We read Genesis 2 and it's like, oh, the animals didn't have names and the problem that had to be solved was the animals had to have names. Just let me tell you something, by the way. Animals do perfectly fine. I'm not talking about the animals at home. They need a name. They must be called in order for them to be able to consciously disobey you. Um, but wild animals, they, they, they don't need a name in order to do what they do. But we read this part of the story as if the problem is the animals don't have names. But remember in this story... The problem is not that the animals don't have names. The problem is that there are no relationships for the human. So the whole animal thing has to do with this formula that the writer's using. It's an incredibly creative, beautiful, theological way of making a point. And the point is not that the animals need names. The point is that animals, just like in the first story, the streams of water are a partial solution to the problem of no vegetation, but ultimately it's human beings who are needed. We're going to find the same thing in this story. All the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. But, notice the, the phrase here, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. In other words, this is all part of the, the story, which is the problem is no relationships. All right? 
So now we have the partial fulfillment. We have the problem, no relationships, partial fulfillment, animals, but that doesn't do the job. So next, we've got to have a resolution, and this is going to tell us something about our purpose. Then the Lord God made a woman. Now again, as Christians, many of us take this as just a marriage chapter. This is all about marriage. Genesis chapter 2 is about, you know, God made marriage. It's not good for man to be alone, so everybody should get married. But what does that mean? I mean, the New Testament, Paul didn't get married. Jesus wasn't ever married. Lots of people never get married. So are they just excluded from Genesis 2? No. When Adam, it says it's not good that Adam is alone, he's talking about all relationships, not just marriage. Now, he's going to use the marriage relationship, and of course, in there, we're going to learn some things about marriage. But the point isn't that single people shouldn't be single. The point is it's not good for any human being to be alone. So the Lord God made a woman. This is the resolution and the solution from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So here's the thing. The resolution is another human being. And now we have the second core central piece of our identity. Why did God create a human to start? The problem was there was no vegetation. He wants someone to take care of creation. To get the most out of creation, but also protect creation. And the second thing is, though, he doesn't want those humans to be alone. He wants them to be together. He wants them to be relational while they do it. And so if we were going to write Genesis chapter 2 as kind of a modern mission statement, one way we could do it is not that, is this. So I just, this is kind of my own words. We could do different words, but here's one way we could rewrite in a modern sort of mission statement way. God's mission statement for humanity. We are relational beings created to take care of this world and each other. Now again, that's not something you often hear modern Christians talking like. Because a lot of modern Christians, it's like we have this thing like, I have to do something great for God. God's already given us a mission statement of what greatness looks like. And this is actually in the Bible. Now, I'm going to come back to that. So tip, let's put that on a shelf. Doing great things for God. Doing great things for eternity. Oh, let's put that on a shelf. There's one more thing. We've got to go backwards. I, I, I left it. So I, I want to go back. Okay, it's going to confuse me a little bit. We're going to have flashing lights, and hopefully that doesn't bother anyone. Okay, back here. There's something really profound about this statement that we just read over. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. But wait a minute. Was Adam alone in the garden? Who, who else was with Adam in the beginning? Anybody? There's no, oh yeah, God. Okay, now wait a minute. We all read this. We just read, da da da. Then Eve, ha, it all works out. Wait a minute. God was in the garden with Adam, and he says it is not good for the man to be alone. You stop to just think about that? See, we modern Christians have a phrase we use all the time. And right up front, I want to say right now, it's not a bad phrase. It's so ingrained in our modern evangelical minds, there is no chance we're going to stop saying it. There's no chance I'm going to stop saying it. And it's a perfectly fine, good, wonderful phrase. We use this phrase, we talk about, we want everybody to have what with God? A relationship with God. 
And by the way, like I said, I'm not insulting that phrase. I think it communicates some wonderful things about our connection with God. It's a relationship, makes him feel closer, all this sort of stuff. Great, not saying it's bad. So long as we remember that when we use the phrase relationship with God, we start to think almost like that's the same as having a relationship with another human being because the two words are the same. Except that God's in the garden with Adam and God being there is not enough for Adam to be said that he has a companion. He's all alone. Let me run this by you another way. And if this offends you and you're new here, just forgive me. I do this all the time and it's just me. It's, it's my fault, okay? It's not you. It's not the church. It's me. Imagine that I took one of you from this room after church somehow and I locked you by yourself in a cellar, right? And I locked you there. I gave you a Bible. I had a slot in the door so I could slip you food and water every day. But I locked you in a cellar all by yourself. And I left you there for days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months. Now imagine at some other point, one of the rest of you here finds out. In the lobby, we're just talking. And you have to say, oh, I haven't seen so-and-so here for a couple of months. Oh, and then I break in and I tell you, oh, I have them locked up in a cellar in my basement with a Bible and I slip food and water in there every day. Now you would be, I hope, horrified. And you would say, what on earth? You have this person locked up in isolation in your cellar. And then I would say to you, oh, they're not alone. They're not in isolation. Jesus is with them. Now, you sit there and you go, oh, where is he going with this? Just sometimes you have to remember, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk. Is it true that Jesus is with them? Yes. And is that a wonderful truth? Yes, that brings us comfort when we're in dark times. So long as we remember from time to time that when we say things like relationship with God and Jesus is with us, we remember that these are pictures of something we have with God that actually can't be reduced to something that literal. Because the truth of the matter is, even if Jesus is with them in that cellar, we all know that they are alone. Because why? They are not with any human beings. And guess what? God made it that way. God made human beings to need relationships with other human beings, not just with him. And he thinks it's not a good idea for you to be locked all by yourself in a room with a Bible so that it's just you and him. Actually, he thinks that's deeply unhealthy and you need other human beings. That's what God thinks. And he thought it so much, he put it into his mission statement. He said, I made creation as a stage on which you can have relationships with other human beings and take care of that stage on which you're having your relationships. It is not good for man to be alone. So anyway, then we go through all this. Da, 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 da. Where are we? Mission statement. Okay. So then we're back here. Now remember I was talking about before. So now we come up with this mission statement that we're here to be relational with each other and take care of this world and to take care of each other. And now we come back to this modern Christian sort of anxiety that a lot of Christians have. 
this feeling I need to do more for God. Like, like this world is not, eh, this is not enough. I'm not just working, I'm working for eternity, right? We got to do great things that are going to last forever. Now, first of all, let me ask you something. Where is forever going to happen? Here. What do you think great things we're going to do on this earth forever? We're going to do great things? I'm pretty sure we're going to go back to the whole reason God did this in the first place. You want to do great things? What are these great things we need to do for eternity and these great things we need to do for God? He gave us the mission statement, what it actually says in the Bible. He said, ah, there's no plants. I want some gardeners. And he made humans. Or he made a human. And then he said, oh, I don't want him just to garden. I want him to have fun with other human beings. So he made another human being. And he said, that sounds like a pretty amazing thing to me. It's why he made us. Relationship and the work of taking care of each other and the world and building cities and farms and towns and all this sort of stuff, that is greatness in God's eyes. So you say, well, where does this idea, I mean, it's got to be somewhere in the Bible. Where does this idea that I need to do great things for God in eternity, where did this come from? Let me help you with that. Modern Western individualism has an idea of what greatness looks like. And it's based on this supposition. This is what modern Western individualistic culture thinks. Your greatness as a person. Notice it's not measured as a group or by just the fact that you exist. It's modern Western individualism. Your greatness as an individual person is measured by what you do and or accomplish. This is what modern Western individualism teaches us. You want to be great? Influence the most people. Build the biggest organization. Give away the most billions of dollars. Influence the most people. Be known by the most people. It's measured by what you do accomplish. It's measured by your influence. It's measured always by size and numbers. You know what modern Christians we've done? Is we've taken a modern Western individualistic idea and then we've clothed it with Jesus. Which makes it sound irresistible. I want to do great things. Just add for Jesus to the end of any sentence and see how amazing it gets. I want to do great, I want to build a huge business, quickly add, for Jesus. I want to make millions of dollars, for Jesus. We just add for Jesus. But the goal is still, your greatness is defined by how big, how big a ministry, how big an influence, how much money you give away and all sort of stuff. That's not a biblical idea, that's a western idea, clothed with faith. Genesis 2 says, actually greatness is live, work, love. Live, work, and love is greatness. Now you say, 
Does that mean we should never attempt great things? Like we should never build, you know, make big sacrifices or never take big risks, never try to, you know, grow a big organization or business? No, absolutely not. Go for it. But know why you're doing it. I love it. Part of being human is some people are wired to do crazy stuff so the rest of us can watch and cheer or cringe or laugh. That's what we do. So some people, if you're going to try great things, that's awesome. Just do it for the right reason. Not because you feel an insecurity that you feel like you need to do more greater things in order to be spiritual or loved by God. Because you feel like God's pressuring you when actually it's just your pastor or some other spiritual person clothing it with Jesus. Or because you're just trying to fill some hole of insecurity in your own life. Genesis 2 says this is big enough. Love the people around you. If you're going to try to do big things, do it because of the thrill of the adventure. Do it for the thrill and the adventure and the, the pleasure and the joy of whatever it is you're doing and enjoy the highs and the lows and the crashes and whatever. Do that and give it all to Jesus' worship. But for everyone else, by the way, Seven billion people in this world. How many of the seven billion get to do great things? How many of the seven billion or of the people who've lived throughout history for the last bunch of thousands of years get to do great things? That's mostly a benefit of living in a Western society, which I love living in, where we have the wherewithal and the time and, the, and, the, and, and whatever, to pursue great things. Those are wonderful things in and of themselves, but they're not required by God. Which might be, I hope that's super freeing for all of you. Freeing for those who want to take big risks and freeing for those who don't. But I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking, okay, wait a minute. You're going too far with this. You've taken Genesis too, too far. I would love to see even one other place in Scripture where this is taught. And I hear you. I can read your minds. That's a great challenge. Let's, go to, let's see what the Apostle Paul thinks true greatness looks like. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so I can just be, wow, like just amazing, powerful, spiritual person speaking in tongues, but have not love. I just don't even like the people around me. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have, now let's talk about greatness. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, like I am moving mountains. That's how big the things I'm attempting are. By the way, nothing wrong with that. Again, do it for the thrill of the adventure. But if you're doing that to impress God and other followers of Jesus, but have not love, I am nothing. You know what greatness is? Just love the people around you. Live out the mission statement. Be a human being. Live, love, and work in Jesus' name. But have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, you manage to make a billion dollars and you give away 900 million of it. We would love to see some of that here at Crossview. But if not, but whatever, and that would be awesome. But 
If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I make all the sacrifice, I live for Jesus, and I'm doing great things, but have not love, I gain nothing. God's definition of greatness is a lot different than ours. His definition of greatness actually, huh, when he came to earth, what did he come as? A baby to a poor family. And then what did he do? Oh, he built a mega church with hundreds of thousands of followers and millions of Instagram followers around the world. Oh, no, wait. He had 12, maybe about 100 total, and they all left him when he died on the cross. What a failure. Nope. But have not love, I gain nothing. Greatness in Scripture is different than greatness in Western individualistic culture. So you and I and we were created to live, work, and love. Problem is that for too many of us, we're missing out on one of the primary purposes of being alive, which is just to be connected to other people. And there's different reasons for that. Some of you here are too busy for relationships. It's just, your life is so busy, and it might just be a season. I love what Doug shared on the thing. Some of there's just seasons where you're just super busy. Don't feel guilty about that. Be in, but be intentional. But some of us are too busy for relationships. But then, there's another group of us. We're actually not too busy for relationships. Some of us have isolated ourselves too much. And we can blame everything on COVID. Let's just blame it all on COVID. It's all COVID's fault. On Judgment Day, we will, many, we will all say, it was COVID that made me do it. But some of us have isolated ourselves too much through habit, through fear, through laziness, whatever the reasons. But we've actually just slipped into a life that is far too isolated when God has wired us to be connected. So I have two practical challenges for us. And the first one is my favorite. And the second one is my second favorite. But you couldn't guess that. But the first one is my favorite. And the title isn't my favorite. But some of the science I'm going to quote to you is my favorite. Because actually, this is way easier than you think. Because some of you, particularly some of you introverts, are going, ah. I don't need relationships. I don't need many relationships. I just need to see one person once a week. Okay. This is my favorite. Not this part yet, but the stuff right after this. For those of you who are too isolated, here's a challenge. Get out of your house and get around people more. This is what God has made you for. But did you know they've done a whole bunch of research? And anybody who wants, you email me this weekend, and I'll get back to you on Tuesday or Wednesday, and I will send you, a, I have an article, and it's got links to all kinds of studies. But this is like a, an area of interest to social scientists right now. And they've done a whole bunch of studies. But did you know that just being in the presence of people, I'm not talking about I got to have 15 best friends. Nobody can have that many best friends. It would kill you, even if you're an extrovert will kill you. Just get out and be with people. And the research shows many different, like all kinds of different studies are coming together on this. 
that just being around people at the level of an acquaintance, not a, not a bestie, not a best friend, just getting out, for example, making eye contact with the person making your coffee at Timmy's, like not being on your phone and yeah, give me the coffee. But you make eye contact, you smile, you make a, a, you know, a Manitoban comment complaining about the weather, but you do it sort of with a happy tone. That's what we do. But whatever it is, that little interaction, the more of those a person has, the like far better off they are emotionally in terms of happiness and overall well-being. One of the studies, out of many they did, they, took, they, they followed 800 adults for 23 years. All right? And they, and they were trying to figure out, okay, what's the most important kind of relationship for people to have? And so they're comparing, and they had people fill out circles. Like in the inner circle is like your bestie, your besties. You just, I don't, why? I should stop saying that. I'm, I'm ashamed. I want to just wash out my tongue, but... Your best friends are in the middle, and then you have kind of like a little more, you know, they're not your best friend, but they're sort of, and then on the outer is like acquaintances. It's a person you meet at the, you know, that you get coffee from. It's a person at the dog park you, 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 you run into. You might not even know their name, but you chat off and on. Uh, your neighbor who you wave at as they drive into the garage or, or whatever. That is just, it's like acquaintances. They're called weak interactions in the science. And what they found was really surprising was that over 23 years, and again, other studies have been done, a bunch of other studies have been done confirming all of this, is it wasn't the people with the most best friends who did the best long term. It was the people who had the highest number on average in human interactions with, at acquaintance level throughout their life. They just got out and they were around people. It was the people who were regularly at the local hockey team's games, and they got to know some of the people who regularly sat in the stands around them. It was the people who were often at the dog park. It was the people, and this was in the studies, who showed up to church regularly. No guilt, Sunday people. We love you. God's not mad at you. But you guys here today, there's a blessing in physically being around people. Just at an acquaintance level, shake a hand. Wave. You recognize them. You might even forget their name. Literally, lots of those kinds of interactions are huge. Absolutely huge for happiness, for emotional well-being, and for longevity. Literally, you could take someone who had five best friends, and yeah, but they only get together once every month or something, but they're, then they're at home isolated the rest of the time. That person is worse off than the one who has one best friend but gets out of the house and is around people regularly. Remember what Genesis 2 said in the mission statement? It is not good for man to be alone. That's not just marriage. That's just, it's not good. And by the way, I'm not making anything. It's great to be able to work from home. It really is. But imagine now a life live, which is what some people are living now. You spend your whole day at home working, then in the evening you're exhausted and you're too tired to go out and do anything with people, so you stay home some more. And is there any wonder that's not good for people long-term? It's not about, by the way, it's not about God being mad at you. It's not about guilt. Oh, God's mad at you. You need to judge. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the way we're wired. You actually have to get up and get out. By the way, there's another benefit to this, and that is what I'm going to say next. And some of you just need to pay attention to this. 
I am not going to make stereotypes about women. Even when I say that, I just sort of made a stereotype. This is a problem for men and women, and maybe sometimes a little bit more on the women. I don't know. I wish I could go back and take back that minute. But anyway. How many of you, elbow your spouse if this is true of them, spend time worrying or overanalyze, I have no real friends. I have no best friend. I have no deep friend. And on and on and on and on. Because you're constantly analyzing. Like you feel like you're lacking. Because you have a certain definition of what it means to have a friend. You know what the research shows? Who cares? Just get with people. Have some shallow relationships. It's good for you. And that brings me to the next thing. It's just get out and get with people. For those who are too busy, schedule time for friendship. But again, don't overanalyze how deep they are. Just schedule time for friends. If they will say yes to being around you, they're a friend. Yeah. Oh, I think I got like five. Schedule time for friendship. Just schedule it in. You know, in a busy world, we're already busy, 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 busy. You know, at the end of your life, you're going to tell God and have everybody at your funeral say, oh, he was busy. And a tear will just go down and reach to you. Oh, he was busy. Love that guy. He was busy. All of your busyness is just busy. One of the things here at Crossview as pastors, we get to be around people who are sick or they've lost a loved one. Nobody at these funerals is talking about the accomplishments. They're all talking about the connection. And yet some of us, I had a moment a few years ago in my life where I realized I don't know any of my neighbors. I don't hang out with anybody outside of if I just talk to people at church. That is not a good place to be. So what is it you like to do? Find some people who will say yes to you. Could be, a, you know, a, a regular bonfires or barbecues, whatever it is you like to do, a monthly card game, whatever it is. But schedule in time for friendship. It's a big part of the reason you are here on planet Earth. So here's the final thing. I want to just finish by giving us a moment to reflect. Because at your funeral, this is actually the stuff that matters. Don't waste your life being so busy chasing greatness that you miss out on actual greatness, which is being connected to other human beings. I want to give you a minute. Would you just bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And I got a timer. We're going to be quiet for 60 seconds. This is actually a gift to you. Some of you haven't had 60 seconds without some sort of distraction this whole week. Take a deep breath and think to yourself. Take stock of your life. Are you making time for friendships? If you are, great. 
you need to challenge yourself to get up off the couch and just get out, physically get out among people. Have conversations, make eye contact. It's why you're here on earth. Live, work, and love. Father, may we not waste our lives. We need relationships. Give us courage where we need courage. Energy where we need energy. Discipline where we need discipline. But help us to make relationships a central piece of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.